0: Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. Each week, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson are joined by an informed guest to discuss a current or emerging issue. In this episode, Nick Chiarelli, Engagement Manager for Ipsos's Global Trends and Foresight Group in the UK, joins Mike to discuss what's changed and what hasn't. In trends and attitudes around the world as measured by Ipsos's annual Global Trends Study. And now, on to the podcast.
1: Welcome to Educate Conjecture. Um, I have uh, a, a guest with me today, Nick Chiarelli, who is an Engagement Manager in our Trends and Foresight group in the UK. Welcome aboard, Nick. Hello. Great to be here. Hello. Oh, well, thank you for, for joining. I know it's uh, it's morning my time, but afternoon your time, so I don't want to cut into uh, any pub time for you uh, <laughs> in London. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll jump right into it. I always think that, that I have a fantastic job um, here at Ipsos, well, anywhere. I get to look at tons of Canadian data on what's happening with Canadian society, what's happening with the economy, views on a whole range of things, because of just the nature of what we do for our clients. But I'm a little bit envious of you, because you get to do this for our global trends clients and you get to look at is it 50 countries this year? It is. It's the it's the largest ever actually. We've, the largest we've ever do. we've ever done. So so can you yeah. maybe we'll backtrack for our uh, our listeners and and just tell us a little bit about the global trends study this year being 50 countries and and why we do it in general. You know, it started back in 2013 actually, way back when. So we're coming up on our 10th anniversary
2: next year. And you know the, the the premise of the study in the, in the first instance was just to uh, give a scope to be globally nosy, just to ask mm-hmm. ourselves what was happening with the public all around the world, what was shaping their lives, what concerns they had, what hopes and ambitions they had for the future, where they were spending their money, and some of these kinds of issues and to sort of track that um, over time is one thing, but also just to see you know for a snapshot point in time how they were feeling and what opportunities that gave for our clients whether those clients were in governments or in corporations or in NGOs you know kind of uh, leverage points they might be picking up on Um, and also just by doing it in so many markets you know that immediately gives you a really rich data set that you can use for all kinds of other interesting sort of investigations which we love to do so you know if you draw the maps of, of, of consumers in different countries according to those the answers to those kind of survey questions. How do they map? Do they just map, you know, geographically? Are Canadians most similar in all the world to their American counterparts? Are Brits most similar to Europeans or to to Canadians and um, other parts of the Anglosphere, or are they closest to, to our, you know, our so-called special relationship partners? So those kind of investigations, once we've got that really rich data set, we can do tons with it. Trends analysis is just, is just actually one part of it. Just to keep going and pick up this study this year, so 2013, initially we were doing the study once every three years, um, 2013, 16, 19. And then, of course, COVID hit, and quite naturally, um, our uh, colleagues and our clients were asking how the pandemic was affecting everything. So we really upped the frequency at that point and started doing it every year. Um, The number of countries is a little bit of a sort of movable feast, but this year, uh, we're actually in 50 markets all around the world, um, which is the most we've, we've ever covered. So we're really excited by that.
1: I would ask you to list out all 50 for our audience, but I think it might be easier to list the ones that we're not in this year. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we do have, we have a really good representation across different regions. We're really excited by our African coverage, for example. Uh, we're in Kenya. We're in Nigeria, uh, which we just started last year. Um, this year, we have a really particularly strong representation for the first time in Latin America and the Caribbean. So we have markets like Puerto Rico, Panama covered for the first time. So, you know, it's it's a really diverse mix right from the sort of really big players in the global marketplace there you know the US yeah. the China China India all the way down to some of the smaller markets that that many of our clients probably don't see much data for
1: no it's true and 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 not only does it have breadth but maybe you can talk a little bit about because uh, it's got depth too it's not a it's not a two minute survey of 50 countries it it, it weaves in some 26 macro forces a uh, dozen trends that we look at feed up and maybe you can talk a little bit if you're comfortable about our, uh, our theory of change and how the global trends feeds into it
2: absolutely yeah so we believe you know that change doesn't just suddenly magic itself up from from nowhere I mean, Change mean is, is driven by by pressure really um we look we, we characterize as you say a number of macro forces 26 of them which bucket up to um six sort of key categories that listeners might be familiar with the sort of steep societal technological economic environmental political um, and also sort of well-being as, as a sort of sixth uh, bucket if you like um, and then within that we are asking more specifically about the consumer reactions so the macro forces if you like are the pressures that push down on all of us that stimulate change they're the, the sort of facts if you like of the world around us so if we talk about the environment, the way to think about the environment as a macro force is what's measurable, you know, the, the facts around temperature change or the facts mm-hmm. around sea level rise or the facts around pollution levels. It's not in that kind of uh, part of the space. It's not so much about the consumer or public response. It's more about the factual, we, measurable we know, change.
1: We know factually, measurably that the Earth is warming and some of the challenges or in something like Societies in Flux, we know that we're seeing – aging populations, lowering birth rates around the world, more in some countries than others, or even if you go to, I know the, the well-rounded well-being, the mental health crisis, you know, was uh, globally and in, certainly in, in, in developed countries, stigma was dropping prior to COVID. Um, and then with COVID, it certainly broke free, and now mental health is on par in, in a lot of places with physical health as a concern. So we know those things are coming. And then what do we, what do we bring up from the bottom on the trend side? Right. So then we see in response to those pressures, individuals
2: and businesses and governments and NGOs respond. They respond uh, in different ways depending on who they are. So as individuals, we respond by um, subtly changing our behaviours or our attitudes, our values, or our values more slowly. But we, we subtly change in response to those pressures. So when there's an economic crisis, we'll change our behaviours. You know, we'll, we'll shop more frugally, we'll we'll share uh, money-saving hacks with our friends, you know, we'll, we'll switch into private label or whatever the response might be. Um, from a business side, um, those those trends will affect how companies do business. So they'll affect things like uh, supply chain routes, you know, as, as political instabilities closed Chinese ports, for example. People were forced into looking for uh, alternative sourcing arrangements. So they looked at sort of friend-shoring or near shoring a lot of their solutions rather than just relying on things coming from abroad. So or they'll or they'll respond by innovating, you know, new products and services that better fit the changing needs of consumers. So those kind of those kind of responses reflect how businesses and individuals respond to the pressures that are put upon them. And we can look at them in, in terms of their sort of granularity. So we talk about we'll talk about shifts. Um, which are sort of collections of, of responses, and we'll talk about more granular signals of change. So that might be a, one specific new product innovation idea, for example. That might be a signal of change, but when you see a whole bunch of them together, you can coalesce those into a sort of um, a sort of marketing shift or a product in, a product innovation shift or a consumer shift. So we'll talk about those three things: forces, shifts, and signals. So the forces, if you like, are at the top that drive all this sort of change, and then the shifts and signals are both different sizes and
1: scopes of, of responses to those those pressures. And by doing that, it gives us the ability to look a little bit forward on some of these things.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been, as you say, we've been tracking these things for nearly a decade in some cases, so we, we have a good feel for the direction of change. And One of the interesting things you know, we see from a lot of this, because you'll suspect, you know, that with a job title that focuses on trends and foresight, that we're obsessed with change. And, yeah, guilty charge, but but actually <laughs> change.
1: yeah
2: <laughs> change is you know it does it's 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 not not everything changes so certain yeah. sort of fundamental human needs and desires um values as i said at the beginning are a little bit more resistant to change so you know we've for instance um where it's uh, some a nice way of looking at this in the uk uh, or the last 20 years internet penetration go from virtually nothing to being virtually ubiquitous we've seen all kinds of um major social upheaval and social events and but at the same time the way that brits think about certain issues to do with the intrusive nature of technology in their lives or the amount of time they wish they had in their lives or they think the the world around them is spinning out of control many of these things are actually rather rather stable yeah, it, so it's a case of just sort of trying to unpick the changing from the unchanging when it comes to our clients and sometimes their yeah, preconceptions can be can be way off
1: we we felt as uh we felt the same lack of control of time um, pre-internet as we do post-internet, despite the fact that, you know, suddenly we're, we're uh, obviously much more connected and 24-7 a whole range of things.
2: Well, and there's all that sort of uh, stuff back in the archives about how the amount of time we spend on domestic chores hasn't changed even when, you know, whatever <laughs> yeah. kind of devices well, the, were invented to to, yeah, to streamline those the processes. the four-day
1: work week that was going to happen, uh, all of those things. Um oh. Can, can, can we talk a little bit about i, I just i mean obviously i will discuss with some of my colleagues later on in another podcast about um some of the canadian data but we we get down to about it i think it's a, around a dozen global trends that we track um ranging from i i, I want to touch on a, a one climate antagonism but they go with climate antagonism tech dimension Divided world, and there's a whole range of them. I, before I pick on antagonism, because I wanted to ask why climate antagonism, as opposed to opportunism or climate challenges, um, I'll come back to that. Are there a, a couple of trends that you found most interesting sort of from a global perspective? Uh, obviously, we can't go into all dozen or else uh, this would be a long podcast. But Thinking specifically of this year, what we're seeing this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that stand out for you.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, climate and technology is actually one of the ones where we see the most interesting story this year, anyway. But we we can circle back to that one in a second, I guess. I mean, clearly, the the major thing on people's minds in most markets is the economy, the the cost of living crisis, the the situation with regard to inflation. So we're talking a lot about that. The trend, the trend that we characterize in that space, uh, talks about reactions to inequality um, and um, uncertainty, and I think um, Clearly you need to preface all of this with fifty markets is a lot and there's massive variation I you know, mean, top top to bottom yeah, yeah. but and we can obviously dig into that on behalf of clients. But, but thinking uh, broadly about this, I mean, you know, we're seeing people felt last year was an okay year. It would, in other words, it was better than the previous two, which were which were absolutely terrible. But their expectations coming into this year, when we asked them, bear in mind we did this study just at the back end of last year. So coming into this year, their expectations are incredibly negative around you know, things like inflation and employment, um, the cost of living generally, and um, but, but there's one interesting um sort of segmentation story that comes up if you interrelate people's perceptions of the, the inflation situation in their in their country with um with how they expect their disposable income to, to change. Um because there's a there's clearly um a bit of head in the sand going on. There's a lot of angst and negativity about the world and a lot of supposed resilience or optimism about one's own personal situation and there's there's no way those two things can really square unless of course in certain situations you know any one individual might be expecting a pay rise or a promotion or whatever so they might have a reason for thinking they can buck the trend but on a societal level clearly those two things don't square up and so we think there's actually quite a lot of shock coming for a lot of people there's a lot of you know that it's it's going to be worse for a lot of people than they are to, perhaps deluding themselves is the wrong word but perhaps you know sort of kidding themselves that they're going to be able to to, yeah. to navigate I've, this without too much shock and change
1: yeah well, having, not you know, true. having worked I've uh, been here for 25 years and been through a couple of cycles and just from a Canadian perspective um, this one does seems to be a little bit delayed in terms of and I wonder from a Canadian perspective it might be because unemployment is held in the past, been um, a real signal to people when their neighbors started to lose their jobs that, well, the economy really isn't struggling and it may hit me soon. Then this one, because of tight labor markets, because of a number of things, it's a little bit like things are slumping but people still are working. So I'm I'm feeling okay, but we'll see how that changes. So that's yeah, interesting yeah. that it's, you're seeing it globally.
2: The, the um, other thing, just, just to pick up yep. – sorry, to, to jump right. Across no, you no, no right, absolutely. But, um, you know, the, 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 the inflationary story is just the beginnings of that. Um, what's inside that trend because we talked about it being called reactions to uncertainty and inequality. So one of the other big parts of that is the inequality story. So it's about um, both on a um, country by country level, so certain countries are more affected than others, um, but it, within countries we're seeing, um, of course, continuing and even rising income-based inequalities, um, you know, more and more concentration of, of, uh, of wealth in the, in the hands of the few and increasing signs of tension, um, happiness and, e- and even more uh, extreme reactions to that. So we think there's a sort of a bit of a pressure cooking situation kind
1: of, kind yeah, of boiling. I, I wasn't going to bring in Canadian data, but I know it's only six in ten Canadians who say they're happy. Um, which is a majority, but it means that four in ten are currently unhappy, and so I think you're, you know, that's a, that's a large slice of the population to to go into the year on dissatisfied and not feeling great about their direction.
2: Yeah, and it, it's it's one thing I think to to feel that that's the case. It's another thing to feel that you're disproportionately affected. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it's if it's, if it's you know uh, one size fits all and everyone's equally impacted. Then you can kind of suck it up a little bit, but um, or yeah. a bit more happily than if you feel that for some reason or another that you're being hit even harder than than the average. So mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a bit of that sort of disquiet and tension that's that's growing in yeah. the number of markets.
1: So we touched on a little bit earlier, and I want to come back to climate antagonism. Um, you know, it's obviously it's a huge top of mind issue. Top of corporate agenda issue, um, maybe not as high up as the uh, public agenda in Canada. As the, the institutions and the leaders would like. But what are we seeing globally on uh, on climate? Yeah, well, the headline numbers are, s- are still high in the sense that eighty percent, I think, it is
2: globally feel that we're heading for an environmental disaster unless we change our habits quickly. That's the way we phrase the f- mm-hmm. question that we ask of people, and that headline number, eighty percent, you know, is very high. But actually, um, you dig into it a bit further and Worryingly, it's sort of shading down in a number of markets, um, sort of Man, a suggestion know. that's kind of <laughs> peaking a little bit. Um, maybe people's attention is being taken elsewhere, perhaps by the, the cost of living crisis or maybe by the sort of geopolitical tensions and conflicts that we're seeing. Maybe they're just a little bit fatigued by the, the climate-based negativity. You know, it's, it's a little bit hard to have to swallow that constant sort of existential threat on the media that we, that we see, you know real as it, as it is um, but it's you know it's draining to, to sort of deal yep. with it so that maybe is another reason i'm a bit hesitant with this with this comment because you need to see these things perhaps over more than one year to, to feel it's genuinely mm-hmm. something but we but we're also seeing a little bit of an uptick in the numbers of people that are sort of starting to to question some of the science about half actually think even the scientists don't really know what they're talking about on environmental issues so, i mean you know the reality is that there is a real scientific consensus about yeah. climate change but actually the the public perception or maybe their way of divorcing themselves from the the, the true awfulness of the situation is to think that actually there is this still ongoing scientific debate about the reality of climate change but
1: you and I both know yeah, that's not there really is but, but but that's an yeah. interesting interesting finding and and it's tough to on a global level to look at country by country and probably segment by segment to look at is the impact disinformation is the impact um, waning fatigue, um, like what is it actually that's driving that? I know in, in from the Canadian data we've seen, um, despite high levels of concern, um, we don't see equally high levels of action. And a lot of it's really, and I can only speak from the Canyon data. You know, a lack of climate change literacy at the individual level, right? Everybody knows that there's things they can do, but um, you know, the, and I think the number one response in Canada is to solve climate change. I recycle, uh, which isn't yeah, yeah. isn't one of the top things. So we have people feel, I think, a little bit helpless in the face of it. So maybe that helplessness is pushing down some of the numbers on on, definitely. on science. yeah, definitely. And as you'll know,
2: you know, our other. Um, great data source, what worries the world? You know, that that tells us that um, there's always something else more pressing, you know, whether it's over the last few years it's been COVID that's been top of that list. More recently it's inflation. But climate change is always sort of, you know, down there on the list because it never quite pushes its way. It's always something else that's more pressing, more immediate, more personal. Um, for people more urgent, yeah it's, more, yeah. it's the exactly. most it's
1: the most important non-urgent issue we. It, nice uh, yeah. it used to seem, although it's changing now with the people actually seeing the impact of climate and storms yeah. and heat waves, etc. But it used to be something that people, I think, saw off, off, far off in the distance, and we're like, yeah, I believe it's happening, but it's not going to be short term. So well, I, we'll see. I think you're right. That over time, we'll see how it shifts and changes. The other one I'm, I'm interested in, just obviously from a Canadian perspective, but I won't ask you to speak to, is uh, Canadian side of it, but choices over health care uh, is one of the trends we're following globally. Is there any interesting st- stories on that that you've seen? Yeah, well, I'm, as, as a Brit, I'm very hesitant to, uh, <laughs> to talk We won't about talk about is. the NHS, uh, well, and I, I promise no one a- in the UK listens to this podcast.
2: <laughs> oh, that's a comfort. Um <laughs> I mean, it's a it's it's a tragic story, really, because obviously the 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 model that we had has been had been envied, I, I would say, you know, but it's uh, a tragic tale of, and I won't get into my own personal politics at this point, but um, but yeah, you know, um, fair enough. Let's let's leave the UK out of this. I mean, I think you know we're talking about a number of different things, sort of converging on each other here. We're talking about um, healthcare on an individual level healthcare systems and how how one pays for healthcare so there's a lot of nuance in here that we don't probably get to within the confines of our survey but one of the things i think that just as a, as a speculation and i'd love your your take on this but you know the last few years have shown well they exposed us to a healthcare situation that was totally beyond our control you know it was something that suddenly came from nowhere and turned our lives upside down um you know and people were Perhaps directly affected in all kinds of hideous ways, or or even just indirectly affected in some sort of softer ways. But yeah, there was an example of something that, that was totally beyond their control. So I think in any case before COVID, we'd seen a rising demand for personal control over healthcare and healthcare decisions, and that's persisting and even been accelerated by by COVID. And I think I've, I've hinted at why I think that's the case. Yeah. Is that lack of control has made us want control even more. Um,
1: so I, I think that's. I think we are seeing that in some of our data as well. Um, that it was inching along before, but COVID has made us um, feel even more like um, I want to take control of my own destiny on some of these things, and so give me the tools and the information um, to uh, d- to make some decisions and, and move forward. There's, I don't know how much of so I don't really see the as a decline in deference to health um, leaders, to doctors and nurses and health professionals. It's not really. We don't think. It's not like we've turned our back and said, "I don't think they're as qualified." It's just that we want more on our, ourselves to a certain extent, and that maybe a higher educational attainment, greater knowledge that's facilitated this. And so we think we can do these things. And you know, mm-hmm. we had a wave in the the 2000s. I think we started a wave of we you know called it the focus on DIY. So I can write my own will, I can sell my own home, I can do my own daytime day trading, right? Like that was a wave of those things. And, and it's not surprising that we've started to I can I can diagnose my own health. Right, I can go online now and figure out whether I have this or I have that. And um, mm-hmm. um, we do a lot of work with physicians, and I know that um, that used to be the bane of their existence when the internet first came along, because people would, you know, self research and come in with papers. And say, Here, I think I have this, uh, but now you go to a doctor, and their first thing is they flip to the internet <laughs> to help search for things. So it's a, uh, it's
2: an it's interesting a, change. Yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? Though? I think you're totally right in the sense of uh, this sort of control, uh, but at the same time, I think. Uh, our, our data suggests from a, uh, healthcare professionals on one side, but the sort of uh, academics and scientists who are working at the boundaries of this. And I know there's a strong overlap between those two anyway. But I think the whole sort of vaccine effort, I think, showed sort of the power of global collaboration and it showed the, the power of science. I think there, our data suggests there is a maybe a naive belief in the power of science to, 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 to do anything and to, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, we sort of ask a question one day all dis- all medical conditions and diseases will be curable um, and while that's that is nudging downwards slightly it's still well over 50% globally um, and, and yeah. obviously you can look at what it might be in Canada so I think it's balancing out there is this power in a belief in the power of, of, of science and technology but people want to be able to engage with that themselves so they want it to be dumbed down enough um, that they can actually engage with it
1: rather than having to only engage yeah. with it through healthcare professionals yeah. potentially Certainly, the arc of human progress on science and technology, things have gotten better. It's you, you can factually tell, if we went back forty years, things were worse than forty years ago, or eighty years ago. I know there's a desire in some of the data that says I'd like to go back to my parents' generation, et cetera, et cetera. But almost anybody who was launched back probably would go, no, that's not as good as what I had way before I uh, I went back. So we, we talked a lot, uh, and I think that's because of my background on sort of the broader social issues. Is there a, a trend or a theme in the data that brands should think about? Um, you know, if you're a large multinational or national corporation, some considerations that they should take away from what we're seeing in global trends? Definitely.
2: And it's, it's a change story compared to if you'd asked me that question this time last year.
1: Okay, great. Which is really interesting. We so found I think, one. Excellent.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I think, you know, over the past few years, we had seen a kind of declining appreciation for, for global over local. And for global brands over local brands, we'd seen, and again, COVID probably helps us think about mm-hmm. our relationship, how why our relationship with local changed, uh, just because we were so, um, we you know locked down into our local communities and looking for solutions that were available on our doorstep, so to speak. But so we had seen, um, you know, this sort of rising of. Uh, appreciation of the local rather than the global you know we'd seen as I said earlier on all those sort of global supply chain um, issues um, that I think interested for it for the first time arguably ever for some people you know they'd confronted had to confront empty shelves and stockouts and unavailability of you know that's the first time many people had yeah. seen and had to think about what do I do if ingredient X isn't available? What do I do? Oh, you know. Yeah. Whereas, of course, our sort of grandparents and parents were much more sort of tied into, well, what's available right now and what can I do with it? You know, sort of a yeah. hundred things you can do with a turnip, kind of kind of thing. So, um, yeah. you know, for that sort of seasonal produce. So that's what we had been seeing. Um, obviously, this this year we sort of when we did the study, you know, things were loosening up. We hadn't really seen the real worst of the um, cost of living and arguably we still haven't but we started to see this sort of um, the pendulum swinging back a little bit more in, in towards global brands and what they can offer uh, in terms of sort of innovation towards, towards in terms of global become,
1: or towards local?
2: yeah towards global so previously it had, previously global, it had okay. been going towards local okay. now it's okay. just swinging back a little bit towards Swing and this is not true in bit. every market but now it's just swinging yeah. back a little bit um, towards uh, and and in any case there's always been this nuance in that story which which says that uh, people in so-called emerging markets are much more um, in favour of global brands than local brands, and that, you know, that's probably because mm-hmm. they don't have strong local com- competition in all spaces. Yeah. So. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely been that sort of swing back in, the, in, in terms of the pendulum switching backwards, back towards global rather than local brands. So um, that's something for, I guess, local players just to think about how they're going to fight back against that and how they are going to just make – because they probably had enjoyed some reasonable times Picking up the slack of where global brands couldn't be on the shelves, or they, or they just were, you know, enjoying a, yeah. a, a bit of a downturn.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised a little bit by that one because I, I, particularly in times of downturn, and maybe it's the non-jobless <laughs> um, challenges we economic downturn we're facing now. Because in the past, it's been rally around local jobs um, in, in Canada. Anyway, when we've had yes, yeah, yeah. declines, it has been you know, um, and, and you know, let's look at. Local brands. Now, I, I, you know, there's just been a flip side. Is you know, Amazon <laughs> comes to your door, and that those things didn't exist, you know, in recessions ten years ago or twenty years ago. So the convenience can trump a lot of things, but um, it's an interesting shift.
2: Well, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I remember seeing ads from two thousand eight, nine, but Harley Davidson talking about it being people's patriotic duty to to buy, yeah. to buy American, and then, uh, yeah. um, you know, um, in the lockdown, Boris was. Uh, t- telling people it was their patriotic duty to
1: go to the pub, which obviously we were quite quite happy to do. (laughs) Quite happy to do. Well, and and we saw that here. I mean, I go back to the, um, you know, even if you go back to we had a SARS crisis, many years ago and one of the first things that they they did in toronto was you know people need to go to restaurants right support your local restaurants and the same thing happened here during COVID. i'm sure it happened in the uk um if you can't go if you want your local restaurant or local pub to stay open order takeout um you know there was this desire to to keep local businesses flowing because those are local jobs etc cetera, etc cetera. um but now i think cuts for some some offers but not for all apparently so well, I've taken a bunch of your time. Is there is there a country that stands out, a region that stands out, or is there another trend that you think I would you were surprised by the the data and the shifts? Uh,
2: I mean, this is the, the, standard, this is the
1: wild card round, Nick. Yeah, you yeah, get to say yeah. Whatever you want.
2: This is the toughie. Yeah,
1: this is the toughie. <laughs>
2: this is the uh the one when you just out on, on the way out of the interview at the end, and they the, yeah
1: yeah. It's like the have, the Colombo moment. Exactly. If I'd have been a good colleague, I would have said I'm going to do this at the end of the podcast, but I uh, I'm not so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think in terms of I'm gonna dodge it slightly to say one one thing it's not so much countries in stand out because we've got 50 countries it's you know it's uh, it's it's hard for there to be a single standout one of the things I think is, is most interesting for me is to look at places in the data set where there are some places where you see huge differences top to bottom in terms of you know if you put the countries in a line they're top to the bottom they're ranged. And other places like on the climate crisis for example, where you see they there there's a bit of up and but they're pretty much all all in line um so that's kind of an interesting thing I think is to understand um, um you know where the countries lie on that line and the other thing that we're just starting to dig into so I can't give you the definitive answer at this point is is how how do those markets map you know do they just map into those sort of old tried and trusted um geographical kind of clusters um to try and answer actually i'll actually answer your question um one of the trends i think that does pop out um is is is, is a is nostalgia um we have not really talked about that and i think yeah. um it makes makes perfect intuitive sense because that's popped up in a, in a number of markets um latin america particularly high but it's up it's up in a lot of places and i think again that makes that makes perfect sense when you've got a here and now that's unrelentingly grim. You know, you've got two choices really. One is to look forward to when times will get better, but that's not—that's kind of hard right now <laughs> because of the yeah. uncertainty that's around. Or you've got the choice of looking back to when times were better. So we're seeing a lot of that halo, you know, that rosy retrospection that they call
1: it for the for the, yeah. for the past, and I'm sure you'll see it a lot in advertising right now. And we didn't talk up front about sort of the the polycrisis, the numerous issues that we're facing. But do you think? Um, maybe just to close, do you think that that polycrisis, which is, you know, the uncertainty in the economy, climate, a whole range of things that are happening, is that the reason why we can't see a brighter future right now, so the the look back to nostalgia?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just been one wave after another, hasn't it? So I saw a really fun, uh, well, not provocative, I should say, graphic on uh on LinkedIn, actually, where someone had represented these things as as waves in coming onto a beach, um, but they were getting bigger and bigger and more and more threatening. And uh, so you had COVID, you had the cost of living crisis, you had the climate crisis, and you had a fourth one, which was sort of biodiversity loss and habitat loss, which obviously related to the climate change crisis. But there's this feeling of sort of wave after wave of, you know, what next, I think. And, and particularly for our young people, I think, you know, that really places huge question marks over, over, the, over the future. It makes... Um, sort of any kind of longer term planning around sort of careers and housing and relationships it makes those things harder at this generation where arguably for the first time in history they're not they can't take as a as a default expectation that their lives will be, be yeah. better happier richer than their parents so that's something yeah. i think we're, we're storing up plenty of problems This all rooted in that poly crisis uh, that, that prompted yeah. your questions so all these things together so one of the things i think and we need to dig into this a, a bit more, and I'm sure you guys will be doing too. Is this is well? Oh, is there a because you see it anecdotally? Is there a live for now movement going on? Is there a sort of make it, let's just enjoy it while we can? But who knows what's coming tomorrow?
1: Certainly, we've the, seen that in some of our data amongst younger generations on the the spending borrowing type of things, where you know we we have a another study that we have people cast forward, and I think it's six ten say the government's going to make up a big part of people's income going forward. This is prior to COVID, right? So you have this notion that it's okay because at some point um, I'll just, I'll get bailed out on a personal level um, and it's higher amongst younger people, if I remember correctly. Mm. Um, so there's that little bit of that. I'll just keep spending because it'll all work out. It, it, there's the growth materialites for some generations. I look at the poly crisis and I said this to clients before it's uh, for well, Canadian of view and maybe it's because of where we live a little bit like we were on a uh on a ship uh and off in the distance pre-covid we could see all of these icebergs on the horizon and we were like so climate change crisis in health care some challenges from diversity a whole range of things and and um the COVID happened the ship started on fire and we became very focused on the ship and we became very focused on putting the fire out now the fire is still smoldering it's not out completely but we popped our heads up and looked around and realized now we're in the middle of the iceberg patch. Um, they're much closer than they were. And we haven't made progress on any of these things over the last couple of years where if COVID hadn't happened, one hopes, we would be further down the path on climate change, further down the path on health care reform, further down the path on economic inequality and some of those things. So we've, you know, we've really... And I don't know that anybody's to blame, just lack of institutional capacity or human capacity to manage forward in the crisis we were facing at the time. Literally, the boat was on fire. So if we didn't put that out, it didn't really matter because Mm the icebergs were never Mm going to make it, right? So Anyway, I don't know. No, no, I like that. I I don't uh, like it. It's (laughs) horrible, but I like it. (laughs) Maybe I'll steal that from you. It's horrible thinking. but (laughs) Anyway. Thank you very much, uh, Nick, um, and um, I would love to get back some time, maybe when we get to, to 70 countries for the 10th anniversary or something <laughs> like that. Uh, okay. um, uh, I know it's been a, a huge task in some 40 minutes to uh, – talk about um, 50 countries the whole world but I think you've done a fantastic job of giving us uh, a little taste of what's to come and um, for those listening um, by the time you hear this um, our global trends work will be released you'll be able to search it on our website and find both a Canadian perspective plus some of Nick's work uh, from a global perspective so thank you very much for uh, joining me today.
2: You're very welcome
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture Follow us wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Public Opinion and Informed Insights. If you have a comment, a suggestion, or a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairsipsos.com. That's P U B L I C A F F A I R S at IPSOS.com.